0: Se know where you This is hell.
1: Live from a skateboard going down a steep hill without wearing any protective gear because we wanted to impress our big brother's cool friends. This is limbo. I am not Chuck, nor do I wish I was. I am still just producer Sebastian, producing and monologuing again this week. A duty all of us behind the scenes. Monkeys are pulling as long as our dearly beloved host Chuck Mertz is slowly preparing his inevitable return. Like the tide, the moon, the sun, or other similar forces of nature and celestial bodies. We are overjoyed to announce to you, dear listener, uh, and you also will be certainly overjoyed to hear that Chuck's return to This Is Hell is indeed imminent and not just a figure of speech. Uh, Tomorrow, Chuck will stream and record another Patreon podcast, and next Monday, May 16, at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time, he will host his first live interview since the beginning of March of this year, interviewing writer Adrian Shirk on his recent book, Heaven is a Place on Earth, Searching for an American Utopia. Chuck will also have updates on the formerly annual, uh, and now kind of irregular, this is held listener an appreciation party, well, now no longer annual, thanks to uh, a certain pandemic that's making the rounds. Um, and this party will now take place on the last day of summer in mid-September. Um, yeah. This is not an insurrection. This is not a revolt. This is simply limbo. And, as in the nature of Limbo, the end is indeed in sight. Again, producing today um, is me, Sebastian. And what's new with me? Well, I got my bike out of storage, and not a second too soon, because all of a sudden, Chicago decided to go from winter straight into summer. And uh, now I am working on rebuilding my stamina Oh, and I just realized there is something missing because I am producing and monologuing at the same time and apparently uh, the heat is getting to my head. I am not having any bed music playing. I was like, well, this isn't weird. Anyway. Where was I? Yeah, I got my bike out of storage. It's been in there for two years. The front tire had kind of rotted away. I needed to get a new front tire tube in there. Um, And... uh, yeah, I gotta tell you, it's not easy getting back on the horse slash bike um, after two years of pandemic, uh, sedentary lifestyle, working from home and everything. Everything. Um, so right now, I'm just working on rebuilding my stamina, which is really in the basement, um, down in the dumps, to actually ride my bike everywhere as I plan to. And, I mean, for now, it's working. Um, and now instead of spending money on the bus, I can just bike to the This Is Held studio above Carrie's Lounge on Devon Avenue in, uh, Chicago's West Rogers Park neighborhood. And even better, I can ride everywhere else, too. I mean, uh, ostensibly, I will still break out and sweat and, and just need to take a very long breather after. Um, and I no longer have to take, uh the bus and no longer have to rely on Chicago's public transportation which uh, it's there I give it that but you have to understand I'm from Berlin and Germany and Berlin has one of the world's best public transportation systems and uh, it's just a different standard um, I mean the comparison is not really fair because you know just it's just, just it just just doesn't compare um, and also I am aware as somebody who well, I have degrees to show uh, for how how much I, I know about this country so I know why uh, American public transportation is the way it is um, I'm pretty sure a lot of you people out there uh, have similar knowledge I mean it's not, no, no secret where all this comes from in terms of corruption and um, just focusing on the automobile, automobile and um, other things but you know Anyway, so while we are patiently waiting for Chuck's return, um, we have been busy behind the scenes. Uh, We are still adding more archival material to our YouTube page at youtube.com slash thisishellradio1996. And uh, we will try some new things there in the immediate future. Um, And while we may not have fresh interviews... Uh, we do have fresh supplies of questions from Hell, even in Chuck's absence. And this week's question from Hell, uh, dear listeners, is... What did Chuck miss in uh, the last two months? What did Chuck miss in the last two months? You can send us your answer to this week's question from Hell via Facebook at facebook.com thisishellradio... DM it to us via Twitter at ThisIsHellRadio, or email it to Chuck, along with your wishes for his uh, uh, speedy, re- speedy recovery, and apparently a lot of you people have sent him wishes for his speedy recovery, as evidenced by his imminent return and recovery, um, to Chuck at ThisIsHell.com, or you can mail it to um, us producers, or rather to me, because Alex is... Essentially, out as a producer uh, at seb at com. That's S E B at thisishell.com. We must have your answer by the end of today's show, following an all new moment of truth by Jeff Dortchen, who is actually still in the studio today and, as he tells me, slightly hungover. That's a lie, he didn't say slightly. Um, I'm sorry, Jeff, I'm out of you here. The best answer to the question from hell will win its author not one not two but three nights counted three nights of perfect sleep powered by whatever piece of this is hell merch they want the t-shirt the tote bag the trucker hat the coffee mug the loaded flash drive containing the this is hell archive of interviews the face mask or the winter hat uh maybe we should add like a, a parasol or something You can see all of our merchandise right now if you go to thisishell.com and click on support. There you can contribute to completely listener-funded This Is Hell. It's after all your fault, dear listener, that we can make this show three or four days a week. So thanks to all of you for your support. I will have some of your answers following the upcoming interview. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your life at the barber, at the library, at the grocery store, when you find out that your favorite brand of ice cream has been discontinued, and instead, instead they now sell something that just fills you with cosmic dread and it comes with a free NFT? Well, I just know that. This is hell. So the running theme of my selection of interviews uh, is essentially covering the history and origins of the United States' slow decline into fascism. And today's interview pick is no different and contributes to this ongoing motive by critically analyzing the topic of American exceptionalism and other myths inherent in American mythology, something I've touched upon in uh, one of the previous week's shows was, you know... um, the idea of American civil religion um, that's kind of related to this. Uh, And so the question there is, is the United States an exceptional country? Is it an inherently good country? And what does that have to do with, well, with fascism? And the answer to that is actually a a lot. Um, Because fascism utilizes a number of tactics to lure in a broad mass of people. Uh, and two of the strongest tactics found in almost every fascistic endeavor are first the declaration that those who follow the movement are a chosen people, better than others, especially inherently better than any kind of outside group. And second is uh, the frequent invocation of a mythical, better if not perfect past and a promise to return to this past. And both of these tactics are ingrained in the idea that of American exceptionalism, um, or well, it's kind of like a chicken and egg question. Um, and as a historian, and especially as a history teacher, American exceptionalism occupies a territory that's broadly in the concept of heritage and essentially something that that we kind of want to shy away from. And uh, I I once. I once assisted a professor who opened his introduction class to American history with um, basically telling his students, well, you are a part of this great exceptional nation. You know, American exceptionalism. Alone, just sitting there just like, dude, what? That's exactly not what we want to teach the children. Um, well, college kids. Um, so, yeah. America, the United States, is exceptional because Americans say it is. It's an idea that makes those in the in-group, so American citizens, generally feel good about themselves without the individuals belonging to that group necessarily having to do anything. So why is the United States exceptional, really? Well, the answer to that is because, and asking that question, is already getting close to heresy. Uh, It is a truth held to be self-evident. If you know America, you know it's exceptional. Not like the rest of the world, better than any other country. The best country in the history of the world that ever was or ever will be. And a lot of the reasoning for why America is exceptional comes from that mythical perfect past. It's a new country that was founded on equality, liberty, and justice for all. Innocent, perfect, a shining beacon for the world. Uh, There are a lot of very, very dangerous elements in this idea. And a lot of potential for actual fascist impulses that can that can run with this, take this, utilize this, and uh, lure people in and um, yeah make people mm, be bad to uh, people who who do not believe in this or who are in the outgroup uh, For one, if one believes that America is better than any other country in the world, then one will not be open to any fair sort of comparison. America has it right, even if it does things different, even if it does things uh, that, that seem maybe not so great. After all, America is an exceptional country. So when in the current debate about abortion rights, for example, people show world maps with countries that have no access to illegal abortions, of which there are not that many, and most of them are not in the so-called developed industrial uh, uh, industrialized world as the United States ostensibly allegedly is the implication is that the United States would be an outlier but then I remember the world map showing places on earth that have no parental leave whatsoever guaranteed by the state and there's the United States in, in, on that map too like the biggest the biggest the reddest dot on uh, not really a dot because the United States is a damn big um, and a very small number of very small other countries and here is where you can see that people who think that the United States is perfect in its exceptionalism would probably argue that away a with, uh, well, America does things better than the rest of the world because it is America and perfect and exceptional. And the same is true with many other of the actually exceptional but awful things that this country does exceptionally high incarceration rate, exceptionally expensive healthcare with exceptionally bad outcomes for the, pa- for the patients, exceptionally bad childcare, and so on and so forth. But this is, of course, not what people mean when they spread the lie that the United States is a perfect, unique, innocent example that can do no wrong. Unless they are complete ghouls who genuinely believe that all of the awful things this country does do different and worse than... Uh, uh... And and then then anybody else are good, actually, because they say that suffering, the suffering that these awful things cause build character. And by that metric, America is the ethical and moral world leader because everybody else makes it just too damn easy for the people, makes them soft. Uh... Now, there are things about this country that are special, uh, but then there are things about every country that are special. Most Americans wouldn't know, however, because the one thing in which their country truly is an outlier is its sheer size, and that makes it unlikely that well, they will ever visit anywhere else. Um, b- besides, you know, like, getting paid time off and everything, uh, which, where uh, this country is also kind of an outlier. Uh, but what about the fascism inherent in all of this? Well, as the, interviewer, uh, as the interviewee says, America's exceptionalism is based on its foundation on slavery and genocide, and the mythical past is a lie. There was little about it that was perfect. Most such narratives do not withstand critical scrutiny, which is exactly why they are so fiercely defended by those who have become used to national belonging being an easy dopamine fix. Getting told that, sorry Buster, your country isn't actually special, at least not in a good way, when you just know that it is because everybody in authority you grew up with kept telling you that it was uh, and that you are part of a chosen people, this just feels like an insult. And then people go and twist themselves in pretzels as to why all the signs to the contrary that America isn't exceptional and good actually are reasons that it is. While ignoring everything else or demonizing those who disagree, and this is generally a problem with nationalism and patriotism, uh, since those things tend to blind one to the flaws of uh, uh, to, to the flaws and problems a nation state has. And if America is indeed exceptional, then that also means that other that every other country and nationality is not exceptional. And that means that every other country and nationality is lesser and lacking. And there things start getting real weird and real bad when we look at America as a country of immigrants. If it is exceptional, and Americans are exceptional people, but literally any other nationality can become American, then does that not undercut the specialty, the exceptionalism in in the whole project? And and that way lies demonizing of outside influences who will be blamed for the bad things that that, uh, happen in this country. And there's a couple of other issues that I don't really have time to go into uh, inherent in here as well, in terms of who is and who isn't allowed to be an American who has the fullest extensive rights in this country, whose contributions to the American project are valued as such. It's not the army of marginalized farm workers from Latin America, even though they are the ones feeding the nation. It's not women. It's certainly not quote-unquote deviants like gay or queer people, and certainly not trans people. Um... And that's when we get to issues that resemble arguments heard in Nazi Germany about the so-called Volkskörper, an understanding of the people of the nation state constituting a whole body and um, and some less than worthy individuals uh, who are essentially seen as cancers on this body. And similar sentiments are also present in this country today. Anything that doesn't make America perfect and exceptional is seen as uh, an element that, that should be removed. As Anything that's that doesn't make America perfect and pure, according to a very weird understanding of what this purity actually looks like, um, it, it is to be removed. And that's essentially where we get back into the whole abortion debate and the, 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 the debate about bodily autonomy. Because, you know, after abortions are illegalized... Eh, there's other things that will come in there, in terms of what is what people aren't aren't allowed to do with their own bodies, and uh, if abortions are illegalized, you know uh, they're already they're already looking for uh, ways to to criminalize trans people um, and trans people's bodily autonomy, and uh, yeah, there's also like things like forced sterilizations that that could come next there. And I know slippery slope arguments are usually not, uh, not great, but in this case, we're already seeing where it's going. So anyway, um, and that ultimately is what I believe the long-term goal of the right-wing project is. Uh, it's a project that on the long run aims to remove less than worthy individuals with a goal to make America great again. <sighs> that sentence again. I wish I would never hear that again. Anyway. Now, here is an interview uh, that Chuck conducted in May 2019 with Black Agenda Report writer Danny Haifong on uh, the lies of American ideology and the myth of American exceptionalism. The link to the articles is, as usual, in the podcast descriptions. In Enjoy. This is hell.
0: The United States is an exceptional nation, better in every way to every nation before and since. America is exceptional because America is innocent, never doing anything wrong. And if the U.S. did anything wrong, it was probably a mistake, an anomaly, and has nothing to do with anything. Thankfully, our next guest disproves all of that. Here to tell us why American exceptionalism and innocence is fake news. His words not mine. Activist and journalist Danny Haifong is co author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, a people's history of fake news from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Danny wrote the book with Roberto Servant, and you can find all of Danny's writing as he is a regular contributor at Black Agenda Report, at Black Agenda Report. Welcome to This Is Hell, Danny. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on the show. And if Glenn Ford writes the foreword to your book, then it's got to be good, right? (laughs)
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Jamal wrote the forward, actually Jamal Baraka, but Glenn Ford was on the afterwards. So definitely having two heavy hitters like that helps a lot.
0: You write fake news existed long before Donald Trump. In fact, Donald Trump didn't even come up with the term. According to the BBC, it was Hillary Clinton who first lamented over the real-world consequences of fake news or false information spread on the Internet. Fake news has become the primary explanation as to why Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 election, the notion that devious... Hackers associated with Russia used fake news to help Trump win the election, has deflected attention from the real shortcomings of the Clinton campaign in particular and the two-party political system in general. Before we move on from that point, I know all the short, how it point out the short com, or how it distracts people from the real shortcomings of the Clinton campaign in particular. But how do you see it showing the shortcomings of our two-party political system in general?
2: I think the whole narrative of fake news that the two party political duopoly has utilized and this has been led by the Democratic Party uh, has been so damaging to the extent uh, of completely ignoring the material realities of their own voting base. I mean, this is exactly what led to the loss of Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016. And it seems like, given where Russiagate went with the Mueller report, uh, basically uh, coming up with a big nothing burger of a result around the whole notion of Russian collusion into the 2016 elections, it seems like Russiagate has just handed a big gift to Donald Trump because of the fact that the Democratic Party has spent three-plus years, and it seems like it will be even longer harping on the notion that In fact, their own base, their own voters, the voters that they desperately need because of the electoral uh, makeup of the United States, where black voters are so important to the Democratic Party, where working class voters in uh, many key states are so key to their uh, electoral future in the presidential elections. uh, They have completely ignored not only the problems that they face, the fact that four out of five Uh, People in the United States live paycheck to paycheck, the fact that, um, you know, black Americans are terrorized by the mass incarceration regime at at record rates. But they even continue to promote candidates like Joe Biden, who will just continue this trend and and people like Nancy Pelosi, who's the head of the House at the moment. Um, We have this situation where this whole narrative of fake news has been turned on its head it's been cre- It's been made into a weapon supposedly against Donald Trump, but really it's a, it's a weapon against the left, anyone left of the corporate Democratic Party and their Republican allies, which has become a real phenomenon, especially since the uh, Trump election, where it seems like the bipartisan consensus on all of the issues that most Democratic Party voters, let alone people who don't even participate in the process, find absolutely heinous, whether that's endless war or endless austerity, the fact that there's, there's barely a Democrat to be found in Washington other than the uh, fringe few who will say things like Medicare for all or that health care is a human right. These are things that people really care about, and um, I think this is what makes it so heinous, this, this fake news narrative. We're being told that Trump... It's the only one who lies and that Trump and Russia have colluded to spread lies when, in fact, the liars and, and not even um, not even to mention that that whole narrative is, is essentially a lie. But the liars are really um, uh, can be easily seen in the mirror, which is uh, the Democrats and, and the two party duopoly as a whole.
0: Hillary was talking about purposely fraudulent news and Trump was talking about news that depicts him poorly, negatively in any way. And then that must be fake news. Are they different fake news depictions? I think you just touched on that because the thing I was wondering is, has it become much more difficult to criticize the media with Trump calling any news that depicts him as fake Uh, Because I've been even told I should be careful in critiquing the media as it could come off as supporting Trump. So is there a difference between the Hillary fake news, the Trump fake news? And do you think that has an impact on the ability to actually do effective media criticism?
2: Well, I think the issue is really deep because uh, when Trump supposedly attacked Uh, fake news in the corporate media, he was really attacking his friends because the corporate media essentially gave him billions of dollars worth of uh, campaign coverage and continue to do so. Actually have continued to do so over the last uh, three and a half years up until his last year in office uh, before the 2020 election. Uh, They, they can't get over him. They are obsessed with everything that he essentially does or supposedly does or um but in but in effect, what Trump was doing was creating a false uh, dichotomy between him and the media false opposition because what the corporate media has been opposing uh about Trump has been essentially a lie in and of itself so um because Russiagate was such a farce because Russiagate was such a scapegoat tactic, it was a strategy to not only enhance. Uh, the warfare state's uh, um, efforts to undermine Russia, but it was also an excuse to use this notion that uh, Russian hackers were everywhere. It was really an excuse to attack independent political thought and independent journalism, which has happened all over the internet, um, Silicon Valley, and the states have really uh, really aligned themselves in order to ensure that places like Black Agenda Report and, and other uh, independent outlets are suppressed in the online sphere. So really, there's so much to this issue of fake news as it's being talked about in the mainstream right now. And I think it's what is really critical is to realize that um, you know the contradiction between Trump and the corporate media is a, is an inter ruling class conflict. It's an internal conflict between uh, two uh, sections of the oligarchy, and Trump being the most recent and most emergent form of oligarchy in the United States, uh, a an accident, so to speak. And so the corporate media was very angry that that accident occurred because it really undermined the legitimacy of the U.S. electoral system. It undermined the legitimacy of U.S. wars around the world. It undermined the legitimacy of U.S. exceptionalism, which is what we talk about in the book. And so uh, they had to attack him, but in their own way, in a way that doesn't really have to do with the problems of the people because whenever he lobs missiles or authorizes lobbing missiles at Syria, Or uh, the ongoing coup in Venezuela right now, the corporate media is is on its side because they're locked in step with Wall Street and the Pentagon. Um, But when it comes to things like uh, Trump's politics on free trade deals or Trump's politics on uh, regime change, when he just utters those things rhetorically, that's where the issue really arises with the corporate media. And I think they know uh, better than, than anyone. And, and I think we're starting to realize that the reason why the corporate media is so obsessed with Trump is because it's good for ratings. It, there, there's a base of people that the corporate media are targeting and marketing toward um, it, that really do like Trump as a television character, as a personality. They like to watch the so-called self-destruction of the celebrity president. And so all of these things are at play as, as we kind of wrestle on and, and trudge on in this era of, of so-called fake news
0: you write that the only news ever reported by various channels of u.s empire is the news of american exceptionalism and american innocence and it's all fake so what happens when all our news is fake or at least fake as it is guided by a narrative of American exceptionalism and innocence. What happens when the news is fake because it's filled with the myth of American exceptionalism and the myth of American innocence?
2: Well, we're not only grossly misinformed, but our very being, our condition, the uh, the way that we understand our conditions and the material conditions before us and the way that we respond to them are heavily influenced. I think I think the corporate media... Um, In the two-party corporate duopoly, uh, their promotion of American exceptionalism, the myth that the United States is a force for good in the world, their promotion of American innocence, the idea that even when the United States does wrong, it in fact is just an aberration, uh, the the intentions of the United States was correct. These narratives really inculcate in the population at large, but mostly white America. They inculcate this notion of superiority, this idea that um, the United States is a superior society regardless of whatever it does. And so when people, especially working people, stand up to the power structure, stand up to the class structure in the United States, they tend to leave out critical aspects of that structure because they're Uh, off-limits. There's no knowledge of what's actually occurring, and the only narratives that we have our narrators that say that the United States is a force for good, and that even, when, and that we just need to reform away the issues that are affecting people in the United States, or that are affecting a certain subsection of people in the United States. What it really does is it places movements, especially, into boxes that um, are then much more easily influenced by Democratic Party politics, by the nonprofit industrial complex. By various forces that can use the vulnerability of the US population in believing whatever the corporate media says whatever the two-party duopoly says especially I'm I'm, I'm mostly aiming this at liberals white liberals Democrats um, it becomes really easy to ignore certain things especially let's uh, you know the the example of Libya for example the anti-war movement was silent on Libya um, and that was because the Obama administration defined it as a, not a war at all. It was it was only a war if U.S. soldiers were to die in it. So by completely rewriting international law, by positing the United States as above international law, the Obama administration was able to destroy the most prosperous and the most progressive African country on that continent at the time. And without a peep from the anti-war movement, except for the... Um, you know, minority of those of us who have attempted to remain principled in this in this difficult period. So, so that is really uh, what we're up against, is the fact that not only are we influenced by these ideologies and how we think about things, but really how we behave and how we respond and how we get angry and then how we come to political consciousness. It, it's a constant process of unlearning um, the fact that, uh, you know, at this time, especially, and this is why we wrote the book. This is the period where uh, you know, millions of people are coming to realize that this system is in decline, that this system is just completely antagonistic to the interests of the majority of people who are you know, fast and rapidly go coming into the working class, um, and that something needs to be done about it. And so our book says that, well, we can't really do much if our solutions are going to be tainted and stained and and manipulated by this very seductive um, ideological apparatus, American exceptionalism
0: and innocence. How do those who believe in American exceptionalism and innocence square that with the history of slavery? Doesn't slavery prove our guilt and that the U.S. from the beginning was never innocent or exceptional. I mean, uh, slavery was a very intentional act. It wasn't just a mistake and error or some sort of aberration. It was a long-term institution within this country that propped up Wall Street for a very long time. So how do those who believe in American exceptionalism and innocence square that with the institution of slavery?
2: Well, there are many ways that that is squared. Uh, Some would counter that, in fact, Uh, slavery was not inherent to uh, the formation of the United States, that it was something that was inherited from the British crown that was uh, ultimately overthrown by the progressive American Revolution, so-called progressive American Revolution. And then they might say that, in fact, uh, the founding fathers and then the um, early leadership in the United States was uh, heavily uh, interested in uh, eliminating uh, slavery, and that that, in and of itself, uh, shows the progressive character, the the move toward a more perfect union, as we call it, which is so, so fundamental to understanding or misunderstanding uh, U.S. history. But as we show in the book, uh, these very convenient manipulations of history, uh, the complete uh, retelling of history and revision of history to fit this very comfortable picture of showing slavery not as inherent and not um, not rooted in the formation of the United States, it, it's just a lie. I mean, there are prominent scholars, one of which is uh, Gerald Horne, who shows that the very reason, or at least the principal reason, why the American Revolution was even fought in the first place was because it was the colonialists. It was the so-called founding fathers, and the oligarchs behind them, the slave-owning class, the slave-trading class, that was so interested in ensuring that the slave trade would continue, when in fact it was the British crown that was incurring all sorts of losses in the Caribbean, all sorts of issues and expenses um, that, uh, around the uh, system of slavery, that was leading the British crown to think about, how can we mitigate this? How can we reform the system of the British Empire in order to create some stability and one of the one of the um, one of the things that was being talked about right before the American Revolution was maybe we need to end the slave trade. They need they abolish slavery wholesale. Maybe we need to end the trade because the trade is leading to these developments such as um uh the uh, sweeping rebellions in the Caribbean where uh, Africans were chopping off the heads and overthrowing, um, uh, you know, uh, settler regimes in places like Antigua. Like this was this was the conversation in the colonialists here in the mainland where uh, the colonies were founded upon this very system and where there had been a demographic shift um, to create white majorities. This was a new trend that was happening in order to uh, curb rebellion. This this was a real fear for the colonialists. And so that, this is historically documented and grounded. But because there has been so much manipulation around the history of the United States um, in this way, this, because it's so fundamental and the afterlives of slavery live on to this day. So there has to be this manipulation to even maintain the system of U.S. imperialism and the ideologies that justify in order to continue that process,
0: uh, slavery has to be mistold and misremembered. We had the pleasure of interviewing Gerald Horn on our show, and so if anybody wants to hear our interview with him, you can just go to com and search on Gerald Horn. that's H-O-R-N-E. I don't know if this came up in your studies, in uh, your research. Is exceptionalism unique to the United States? Is there such thing as Canadian or Russian or Chinese exceptionalism? Doesn't every nation have exceptionalism to some degree or is that a confusion with patriotism patriotism and nationalism
2: well i think that there's something very unique to american exceptionalism american innocence and that is the fact and some would argue with me around about this but i i I do think that the united states is unique and some would say this is unexceptional but is unique in the fact that its settler colonial system was founded upon this enslavement of Africans and the genocide of indigenous peoples, and that this was really the first republic that was founded upon those systems. Uh, it was the first uh, so-called uh, settler society that created national unity around these, the cross-class interests of white supremacy. Um, empires in the past have, have, have uh, developed into racist uh, societies the, you know, Great Britain, the empires before them, Spain, all had their own racist histories. Um, but they were societies that um, were formed based on mercantilism and the desire to colonize the planet. Um, and so the, those colonies remained colonies of the British crown. This is the first society in and of itself to gain independence found, uh, based on these uh, founding systems of white supremacy, um, and, and capitalism as well. So, you know, there is something exceptional in that, in the sense that, um, you know, uh, the United States has this unique history that makes it one of the most difficult actually to challenge, um, because it's so entrenched in the very makeup and fabric of society. Uh, but, There's also another difference to be made, I think, too, because a lot of people may read the book and think of nationalism and think of uh, what our book really does is condemn U.S. patriotism and the notion that the U.S. is exceptional because it's an exceptional country based on values uh, and that our flag represents liberty and democracy and that that is uh, what we're critiquing, and it is. However, um, that shouldn't be equated with other forms of nationalism that exists in the world. There's a lot of patriotism, I'm sure, in China. There's a lot of patriotism in Cuba, but it's of a different form. It's of a it's of a it's of a form of overthrowing the yoke of colonialism and overthrowing the yoke of an oppressor that really breeds that form of nationalism. The experience of being colonized, which um, is not necessarily uh, disconnected from U.S. history. Uh, but in the sense that the U.S. has had internal colonies, has enslaved Africans, has um, committed genocide and stolen the land of uh, several and numerous uh, indigenous nations, that this uh, form of patriotism is rooted in that blood-soaked history. And so there is something very unique in that. And so, yeah, we need to differentiate, I think, different forms of nationalism and exceptionalism based on the class interests behind them. And so uh, we root our analysis in the fact that Western liberalism generally provides the framework uh, for American exceptionalism and American innocence, that it was really a, a reform of those ideologies to fit the needs of the particular system here in the United States that that ultimately was rooted
0: in in settler colonialism you and Roberto write about the seeming reflexiveness of American exceptionalism even saying that when people are being critical of the United States uh, they will they may say something negative and then say but of course give the qualifier of we're still the greatest country in the world is American exceptionalism politically correct that is do you have to qualify everything with American exceptionalism or you will be seen as insulting, rude, and offending political sensibilities, which is the definition of political correctness.
2: Yeah, I think you could definitely see it in that light. It, it really surrounds, I think, I think political correctness is, is definitely a weapon uh, that is used to preserve the interests of a particular class, uh, the ruling class, the capitalist class, and all those who seek uh, its favor. And so there's lots of uh, various uh, of groups and sections of the population that really has an interest in preserving American exceptionalism in order to achieve what they think will also be theirs, which is the dominance of the ruling class and, and, and the money that it makes and the profits that derive from it. So there is a lot of this always happening. I, I think that anyone who's been in... Uh, politics, anyone who has struggled on the streets for whatever uh, issues and whatever uh, political uh, struggle that they're involved in have experienced this, where um, as you're trying to win someone over to a struggle or uh, win someone over to a particular political line, uh, they're when you start to talk about certain issues or you, or you frame things in a certain way, especially when you begin to challenge root and branch, the system of imperialism, uh, the warfare state, the endless war and austerity that the United States wages domestically and abroad. When you start to make this about fundamental, not flaws, but fundamental interests and the fundamental social relations that ultimately uh, form the core of what the United States is, then that's where, no matter where we are in the political spectrum, uh, we see this. I think in more subtle forms, even on the radical left, uh, where you start talking about certain issues and certain questions, and there's you you get ostracized and silenced. Uh, there's this. It's almost there's almost a sectarian character to it, and and a fear. I think there is a latent fear because it's different for. Uh, it's different depending on who you're talking to. Um, but that backlash comes in some form because uh, to challenge U.S. imperialism and branch, to challenge these ideologies that are so seductive and really take on so many different forms. I think some people have had, uh, have had trouble with the book in some ways because there's some things that we talk about it, like the international aid, for example, charity, and and the aid structures that the United States dominates around the world, the IMF. Um, these kind of financial institutions, there's some who may have trouble understanding it from the framework of American exceptionalism. How does that really match up with it? Um, when in effect, when you're talking about the U.S. as being even able to help other nations as they are destroy, as it is destroying them, is in itself a fundamental contradiction that screams of exceptionalism. It screams of this notion that the United States is capable of doing this at all. And uh, that's, that's what we're trying to challenge. We're trying to challenge... The most difficult questions of this period that really uh, garner strong reactions from all sides of the political spectrum. We're not just talking about the right wing here or uh, conservatives. Uh, We're talking about liberals and we're even talking about the radical left uh, or what calls themselves the left at this moment.
0: We are speaking with activist and journalist Danny Haifong. He is co-author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Danny wrote the book with Roberto Servant. Danny's a regular contributor to the Black Agenda Report, and you can find Danny's writing at blackagendareport.com. Some past guests on our show have given Danny's book high praise, including John Pilger, Stephen Kinzer, and Michael Parenti. What explains this American exceptionalism? existing alongside the cynicism toward government and positions on the right and left, even in the center, that are anti-government. How is it possible to believe that both the United States is exceptional, but all the people in government suck?
2: It's, it's, uh, there are many, uh, I, I think, explanations for this. Uh, one of which is, um, especially in this period of extreme neoliberalism, where U.S. imperialism has entered a stage economically in terms of its capitalist infrastructure that points to the need to siphon off and privatize and profit from every single aspect of society, Uh, that this need to pillage and to rape and to um, destroy nations around the world, to privatize all public services, that this need is, is... it, it is critical. It's, it's a form of desperation of an empire that's running out of things to plunder. And in effect, this need to plunder everything means that it has to plunder itself. It has to plunder the very state from which is, it's, is supposed to protect it. And so that is, a, that is a fundamental contradiction to neoliberal, this neoliberal period where there is such a, Consensus among both political parties of so-called small government, but really what that means is uh, there needs to be very little for the poor. That services and um, you know public sector unions, pensions, so on and so forth, have to go. But trillions of dollars can be wasted away into the Pentagon to build bases and bombs and. To you know, build absolutely nothing. Sometimes it just disappears because there are people running away from, away, with, away with it, and so uh, that is okay. That form of big government is okay, but as long as it's not talked about, and part of this contradiction, I think too, is that there is a need right now to to blame. Uh, it's not good enough to blame the poor anymore. Uh, I think that this has been embedded in the psyche of many people in the United States, and it's been hostily uh, conditioned into us through the corporate media and through um, our politicians. However, a lot there it's becoming more and more difficult to do that as more and more people are affected by the, the conditions of neoliberalism. As more and more people enter uh, the working class, as more people enter the realms of homelessness and precarity, all of this really means that the narrative of blaming the poor also means you're uh, creating and inciting the conditions of rebellion. So then the, the government becomes the target. The politicians become the target in a, in a way, it, because in effect, we, it's, it's complicated. We have a situation where the Democratic Party is now the engine of American exceptionalism. And part of that being that engine of American exceptionalism is protecting the so-called values and structures of the system of the idea. And that even includes the electoral college that keeps screwing over the democratic party. Every time, uh, there's a, there's an election, um, there's a close election, right? So, um, there are a lot of contradictions to that phenomenon, but I think part of it is that the material conditions on the ground are getting worse for black people who are fundamental, uh, part of the democratic Party strategy uh, in order to win elections, but also for for people across the political spectrum, conditions are just worsening, and we're being told that they're not and we 're also being told that war is great and war is wonderful, and we should continue to wage war. Um, but a lot of people are are angry about that, so there is this level of confusion I think um, among the ruling class. I mean look at russia gate russia gate attacked the very political system that it was supposedly seeking to preserve by proving that Russia tacked the U.S. elections. But in effect, it was saying, and Glenn Ford talks about this all the time, what Russiagate was really saying was that the U.S. is weak, that the U.S. can't even protect protect with the largest intelligence uh, and uh, surveillance apparatus ever created in human history with the largest military state. It couldn't even protect it's elect- election system from the Russians. This is a contradiction of itself. So there's a lot of signals to people that the United States is weak. And so you need something to blame. And, you know, Trump has done a very good job of this, blaming the so-called swamp, uh, which he is a part of. But he blames it in order to garner political favor because there's a lot of people who are looking to blame someone other than themselves for their miserable condition. And, and you know, rightfully so in terms of, you know, uh, uh, the state itself. But when the ruling class is doing it, that means there's a crisis on hand.
0: How much is American exceptionalism an obstacle for even activists who are fighting for social transformation to overcome within themselves? How often do you see exceptionalism getting in the way of successful activism do should should activists before they even try to attempt social transformation should they first confront american exceptionalism so they can get over that and hopefully get over that within their thinking of trying to apply real activism that causes actual social transformation
2: all right i think it's a process you know for activist, which I, you know, which I'm a part. I had my own process, right? I, I didn't just um, read a book and say, "Wow, American exceptionalism and American innocence are really impediments uh, to the struggle for social transformation in the United States and around the world." Uh, that that wasn't how it happened. It happened. Um, from particular experiences that I had that propelled me into activism. And then through being propelled into activism, learning from my environment, learning from the conditions around me, learning from the people that I communicated with and talked to and organized with, that these ideologies were really getting in the way of, uh, of fundamental social transformation. And, and, and so it's, I think it's going to be different for everyone. Uh, But I think we wrote the book as a tool to show that um, and to use to show that there is a need in our activist circles and our organizations to confront this as it occurs, because it's going to come up whether we like it or not, whether it's intentional or not. Um, I, you know, I think that one of the things that we talk about in the book is this whole politics of inclusion, the diversity, the con of diversity, as Glenn Ford calls it, uh, how this has really seeped into the politics of the left, that there's a lot of disorganization and a lot of infighting and a lot of struggle that occurs around these issues um, that can be very harmful to talking about class and talking about war and talking about white supremacy in a, in a structural way, in a way that gets to uh, just who the enemy really is. And we end up with a politics of inclusion that makes it very seductive to want power, to want power within the system. And we see this happening. I think of someone like DeRay McKesson, for example, who was uh, one of the activists of the, or, or he called himself an activist of the Black Lives Matter movement. He was someone who promoted charter schools and who had a very, um, you know, watered down political uh, orientation and uh, you know, really was seeking a career for himself through activism. And that's what diversity politics really does. It uh, carves out careers and money, mostly from the Democratic Party apparatus and nonprofits affiliated um, with their donors. Um, And so we're really pushed um, toward that trend. And, you know, the Obama administration was probably the highest form of, of that uh, where we saw someone who called himself the first black president or at least uh, a lot of people were calling him the first black president even though he's distancing, distancing himself from black people um, as soon as he was in office so you know I think how dangerous that can be uh, when the desire to reform the United States to make it look better to make it seem more progressive uh, really does get in the way and, and, and in terms of a uh, uh, real political struggle um, against systems of oppression and against the very um, empire that we are living in and, and we see this uh, with the radical left we see this with organizations that have a hard time criticizing certain uh, leaders we saw that during the Obama period um, we saw the backlash uh, against Bernie Sanders when he came uh, to criticize Hillary Clinton's Wall Street speeches. Immediately, he was being, his supporters were being all Bernie bros, and they were all just white men. I come to find out that a lot of his supporters were young black Democrats uh, who were very excited about things like Medicare for All, but we weren't hearing that because, in effect, uh, we were being told, that only white men support Bernie Sanders. And so he was, in effect, not progressive. And, you know, for all the criticisms that I lay on Bernie Sanders, uh, in terms of being an imperialist pig and someone who supports war um, without really questioning it, at the same time, when we can't even move the lever because uh, we're being told that Bernie Sanders is a white man and he shouldn't be running. When we, we, when we get into that struggle of just because you're a black person or just because you're a woman or just because you're queer, that that makes you uh, accountable to the people. It's laughable because what we've experienced over the last, especially 30 years, is that Conditions can worsen for the masses, conditions can worsen for the majority of black people, but there can be plenty of black leaders and there can be plenty of queer leaders and there can be plenty of women in the military industrial complex, but that doesn't make war any softer or any more uh, feminist. It makes it even more destructive and more effective.
0: We have been speaking with activist and journalist Danny Haifong, co-author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Danny wrote the book with Roberto Servant. Danny is a regular contributor to the Black Agenda Report, where you can find all of his writing at blackagendareport.com. Uh, and Danny's book features an afterward by frequent. This is Hell guest Glenn Ford of the Black Agenda Report. So you know it is good. One last question for you, Danny. And as always with each and every one of our guests, it's the question from Hell. The question you might hate. To, uh, we may hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You would like to see the end of American exceptionalism and innocence, a belief in it. I would like to see an end of American exceptionalism and innocence and a belief in it. Would an end of belief in American exceptionalism and American innocence be the end of the United States of America?
2: (laughs) I think it would be the end of the system from which the United States of America rests. Uh, Really, the only way that ideology can be um, stripped away and delegitimized wholesale is when there is a revolutionary upheaval and upsurge on the ground that challenges those ideologies with alternative narratives and with narratives that are backed up by a movement strong enough a movement comprised of those who have been forsaken by the oppressor and ruling class ideologies like american exceptionalism
0: only then
2: can that belief be stripped away and so Um, We talk about in the book imagining what the world would be like um, without a United States of America. That doesn't mean, as a lot of Zionists like to say about Israel, it doesn't mean wiping the United States off the map. We aren't uh, aren't into uh, mass genocide or nuclear war. We're totally opposed to those things. Those are the only things that can really wipe um, anyone off the map. What we're talking about is wiping away a system and overthrowing a system that is predicated upon class rule, that are predicated upon the rule of the rich, the rule of a white supremacists in order to protect the rich, and the rule of the warfare state, which in effect protects the rich. This is what we're trying to get at. And so our challenge to American exceptionalism and innocence is very um, intentional in looking at historical examples. And we focus on the black liberation movement because we have to be honest, the black liberation movement has been the most revolutionary and radical political movement in the United States uh, throughout its history. And so we go back into uh, the history of this movement, talking about people like Claudia Jones, talking about people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, uh, leaders of the Black Panther Party. Uh, We bring up their struggle. And what that looked like to show that when you do question American exceptionalism, when you do question American innocence, and we do organize against it in in terms of its material consequences, there is there are going to be uh, severe challenges, and we're already facing repression in a time where there the movement is probably is is at a low point, um, even though there is this upsurge in progressive Uh, ideas and the fact that more and more of the population is coming to terms with the fact that there needs to be significant change uh, in the United States um, in order to better their condition and in order to better the condition of the population at large, there isn't really a struggle, a mass struggle around it, which is usually led by black people. And so we link the fight against American exceptionalism to this history of struggle in the United States, and um, we for, talk a lot about anti-war struggle, anti-imperialist struggle, in order to connect and build solidarity with people around the world, and, and to show that in order to really strip away the belief of American exceptionalism and innocence, we need to uh, fight against this system that propagates it, because then that's where we can really reach masses of people um, and I hope that our book is a tool to help uh, you know to help us do that. I think that's that's why we wrote the book.
0: Danny, I really appreciate you being on the show with us. find all of Danny's writing at com Say hello to Glenn and Bruce for me and enjoy the rest of your evening sir.
2: I will thank you so
1: much. And with that, we are back in 2022. Until the show returns to regular prog- regular programming, Monday after next, please everyone, knock on wood, we will continue playing these staff picks. We will also have all new Rotten Histories, all new Questions from Hell, and new Moments of Truth starting next week. Wait a minute. We have new Moments of Truth today, actually. Um, if you wish to show your appreciation for our work here, uh, you can go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support, where you can buy our merch or subscribe to our Patreon, which you can also find at patreon.com slash thisishell, if you are one of these people who like to cut out the middleman, all of which keeps this here completely listener-supported blimp in the air. Without you... We got nothing. We guarantee to you, on the graves of our dear beloved mothers who have passed before their time, uh, that there will be all new interviews, all new monologues, and an all new old Chuck. So thanks to all of you for your support. Uh, Now, let's see what answers we have for this week's question from Hell. A reminder for the deal listening audience: This week's question from Hell was, "What did Chuck miss in the last two months?" What did Chuck miss in the last two months? Uh, and on uh, Facebook, we have Borky B saying nothing. I mean, uh, uh Krimsky Cracker says. He missed his turn getting the round in at Carrie's, so no change there. Um, Kim G says, eight hangover cures. Jameson K says, omg, omg, omg. Chuck does not know about the slap. Let's all agree to to do the honorable thing and save his innocence and sense of propriety. I'm not sure if there's much left there, buddy. Um... And Jeff C. says, bongs. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure he missed those. Um, I mean, I, I guess. <clears throat> we will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. And the drawing, um, or rather the declaration, of the winner of uh, this week's question from hell... Um, following the upcoming installment of The Moment of Truth with Jeff Dorchin, who is still live and living in the studio. Delivering you talking points and arguments that make you more and more estranged from your Nomi friends since 1996. Uh, even though we don't really want to do that, since that's ultimately counterproductive, and we should do a segment on how not to alienate your less politically inclined and interested friends and family. This is Hell, If you want to prove that one can have a successful progressive talk radio podcast streaming program without interrupting our programming for an ad break every 10 minutes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Go to our website thisishell.com and click on support and see how you can further enable us to keep doing what we're doing. Bad habits, good habits, and everything in between. If you want to be an enabler, at least enable some good things in the world for once. Speaking of enabling good things, how about donating a few bucks to your local abortion fund to make sure women in your area have access to safe abortions, if they need them, regardless of income level. Go to abortionfunds.org funds and open your wallet. After the upcoming segment, I will read the final answers to this week's question from hell and announce this week's glorious winner. Broadcasting live and in color from land stolen from the Council of Three Fires, the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Menominee, the Suck, the Fox, the Kickapoo, and the Illinois people. There's still a lot of people this land stolen from. This is Hell, and here's one who knows what I am talking, talking about. One, two, you know what to do
3: Scalia plus Alito equals meh, Scalito. Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito is an arrogant liar. In this, he takes after his dead mentor on the SCOTUS bench, Antonin Scalia, a man with neither a conscience nor an optimally working pancreas. Now, there is no shortage of flatulent losers on the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett are the two most recently added passengers in that clown car, and they seem like token placeholders in a battle to turn the court into a stamp mold for decisions based on radical right-wing Catholicism. This court represents radical right-wing Catholicism more than any other faith, and it rules according to radical right-wing Catholic dictates, a fact that calls into question... The court's integrity as a body reflecting the aims of the secular or deist framers of the Constitution to which it gives poorly informed lip service in its many partisan opinions. Let us remember what Bill Donahue, the president of the Catholic League, said about secular Jews, lest we misunderstand how much Catholic radical fascism owes to the Nazis. Secular Jews hate Christianity, he contended. They like anal sex and abortions. Alito, in his leaked and leaky draft and drafty opinion, spends his time debunking the notion that there is anything in the Constitution supporting a woman's right to end her pregnancy. He glibly elides, or glides, over the Ninth Amendment, in which rights not enumerated in the Constitution are reserved to the people. Sounds like Alito just didn't want to hear what the Constitution was saying. In any case, his real project is overturning Roe versus Wade, which doesn't rely on the Ninth Amendment to guarantee said right. So despite what the Ninth says, Alito, according to his masturbatory logic, needn't address it. Alito wants abortion made illegal. He contends the nation is split on abortion. It's not. And he knows it. The vast majority of us supports Free, safe, legal access to abortion, particularly in the first and second trimesters. Alito, throughout his opinion, uses the phrase unborn human being, signaling where his allegiance lies with the misogynistic right wing minority in the nation. Because he is an abortion choice antagonist and an overall antagonist of whatever he thinks the left is, nota bene Donahue above. Alito briefly feigns concern for the experience of the mother, but only out of vague obligation, and speaks mainly out of concern for the unborn human being, presumably the one party in this argument of which he feels himself the intellectual equal. I'm sure the little bean-sized fetuses agree with him heartily. You ever seen one of these things? I'm pretty sure I was given a dish of them as crispy banchan to eat before a Korean meal. An appendix to the opinion lists anti-abortion statutes beginning in 1825 and ending in 1952 in various states. It's there to support Alito's contention that there was no tradition of condoning a woman's right to end her pregnancy around the time of the framing of the Constitution. Of course, there was a tradition of keeping black people as property around then, too, but that that's not an issue. Incidentally, not a single statute mentions the intentions of the pregnant woman, Until the second-to-last example in Kentucky in 1910, and therein to state the consent of the woman to an abortion is no defense for the provider. All the statutes punish the person who provides the abortion. The desires, motives, social conditions, relationship with the father, or needs of the mother, aside from mention of an exception in cases where continued pregnancy threatens the life of the mother, are completely ignored. Cases of rape and incestuous rape are not mentioned in a single instance. That is because the rights of women have expanded since the Constitution was first written. It's pretty clear that Alito doesn't find the expansion of rights to non-land-owning, non-white males a tradition worth acknowledging. It's even possible that the political interests Alito and his opinion are meant to placate find that tradition abhorrent. Whatever the case, It is Alito's obvious goal to wish it away by pretending it doesn't exist. Alito quotes dead Scalia, denigrating Roe versus Wade. He goes out of his way to chip away at the supporting laws and precedents supporting Roe. He does so in order to undermine Roe's status as settled precedent, or stare decisis, to which he claims adherence if only Roe weren't such a poorly supported precedent. Alito patently argues in bad faith when he denigrates Rose unworkability and points to the imprecision of the words undue burden regarding the obtaining of a procedure to end a pregnancy. Would he apply the same derogatory judgment to the words unreasonable search and seizure or cruel and unusual punishment? Taking current trends as evidence, the difficulty in even finding an operating abortion clinic in certain states Texas, for example, argues for a quite uncomplicated understanding of the phrase undue burden, but that would require Alito to look outside of the document under consideration, the Constitution, and more precisely, the pre-Civil War Constitution, within which boundaries his vision is limited, like a mule wearing blinders. Can any judgment be made on any value-laden words or phrases without looking at the situations in the real world they may refer to, who is this self-blindering jackass? No, the trend in abortion rights limitations is perfectly justified to Alito because the decision which allowed women to have the right to control their pregnancies durations is so easy for him to mock and lambast. Nay, he's got a critical mass of fellow fascist Catholic fundamentalists on the court to bolster his bilious adjudication. He is correct in writing that Roe lied too much on appealing to the 4th Amendment, well, the 14th Amendment's due process clause and privacy issues instead of the right of a human being to make their medical choices without the state having any say in the matter as he points out. This was also a critique made by feminists at the decision's advent and has continued to be the critique the closer and closer the Federalist Society has moved to its goal of packing the SCOTUS with anti-choice radical Catholic fascists. We can call them Catholic Nazis. There's no reason not to. Pope Pius XII clearly saw no substantial disagreement between the Vatican and Berlin during the ethnic, sexually normative, racial, national, and ableist purges at the height of the Holocaust. Pius XII was a staunch anti-reproductive freedom authoritarian, as was Hitler, to whose projects of genocide the Vatican remained thoroughly agnostic and disinterested, and as Bill Donahue reminds us, Radical right-wing Catholicism has not progressed much in the intervening eight decades. I guess that's just women's bad luck, because now evil, grasping theocrats with no respect for the Constitution's tradition of broadening rights rather than curtailing them are in the majority. Not in the nation, not in Congress, but simply on the heavy-handedly manipulated court. Dictatorial Catholic fascists are wielding the magnifying glass now finding only what they want to find in the document they claim to be examining fairly and to the strict construction of which they purport to be adhering. Alito, assuming himself to be the sole intellectual on a court now crammed with a frat boy and a Stepford wife over the legitimate but usurped constitutional right of a democratic president, spends his time rooting around in old British law, neglecting and in fact flat out falsely denying the common law acceptance of a woman bringing on her period through medical means. So common was the practice that none other than constitutional framer and colonial nation founder Benjamin Franklin published a recipe for an abortion formula for women to make free use of, so much for no evidence. But I guess if one refuses to see it, it isn't there. And if you want to distort the history of common abortion acceptance in the colonial era because you have a different, more fascist agenda in mind, why not? Who can stop you now that democracy is fair game for destruction by gerrymanderers, wealthy ideological donors, court preferring think tanks, and conspiracy-drunk yahoos? In a way, this decision could be a deceptively good thing because now the fight can move to destroying by any means necessary bad faith Jesus peddlers who dismiss the bodily autonomy of women. The people who, who want the people want abortion to be considered a medical procedure out of the bounds of government regulation or prohibition. On the way to completing our revolution of the people against the corporate profiteers, of the earth against the polluters and destroyers, of abundant distribution versus false shortages, hoarding, and resource theft, let us make this landmark in the history of fascist jurisprudence be for us, the people, the straw that breaks the camel's back. This has been a moment of truth. Good day. Yeah, man. And I am not just a contributor to This Is Hell, but I am also a Patreon member.
1: Good for you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. <laughs> so you two enable us here.
3: I do. Oh, and I wanted to mention, when you give dollars to abortion, uh, mm. to, to uh, pro-choice uh, groups, leave out the Democratic Party. Mm. They are doing nothing. They have a lot of things they could do to get their agendas through, or the progressive agenda through, yeah, including yeah. Uh, preserving abortion rights, but they're not doing anything. They don't deserve your money, and they don't deserve your votes.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of exactly the problem right now. The way I see it is that they uh, they are now basically saying, well, if you vote for us in in November, then we'll put the thing through. And like, You had so many chances to put this thing through. Do
3: it now. You have the majority now. Well. And you had the majority when, uh, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. We got the president. We got everything but the Supreme Court. You could do whatever you wanted. There are a whole lot of courts you could appoint uh, progressive to.
1: I mean, well, we do not really have the Senate because we have Joseph Manchin, who I refuse to spell correctly. Dirty Joe. Yeah, it's just Dirty Joe they call. I mean he is basically a Republican, right? I mean that's that's the thing. He's always like, Oh yeah, no, I'm voting with my Republican colleagues. I'm like, Yeah, they're your your Republican colleagues, alright. That's right. right.
3: <sighs> well, we know who we hate, and it's just getting more and more clearly defined every day. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So let's get busy.
1: Yeah, let's get yeah yeah let's get busy. Just uh, put your money towards the right causes. Um, I d- do what I can here uh, with the platform I have been given. Um, to advocate for these things, uh, and uh, in the meantime, I hope that we can get in uh, a few more listeners who uh, I can get this message across to, who we can get this message across to, because this is, after all, a collaborative effort.
3: Um, I love our listeners.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I have yet to meet one I, I don't like.
3: I really like that Eat Fart sixty nine. He's a <laughs> he's a one time Holiday Ham winner. According to his bio.
1: Speaking of Eat Fart Sixty Nine, he answered uh, that he wrote an answer to okay. this week's question from Hell on uh, on Twitter, saying uh, Chuck missed in the last two months smoking weed, and that is, I have on good authority something he actually missed. Yeah. Um. W- what do you think that Chuck missed in the last two months, Jeff?
3: Well, I I, ha- I gave my answer, but. Uh uh, one of the DJ or uh, DJs, the, the engineers, was too was too shy to read it. Mm. Shall I say it? I,
1: that's why you're here. Because I'm
3: not shy.
1: I, I, we know that, Jeff. We what, know that.
3: What Chuck missed was my titties,
1: mm. and
3: <laughs> I happen to know that that is true. And he no longer misses them now that I'm in town.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure he doesn't.
3: He's like, I've had enough. Get those things out of my face. <laughs>
1: On Twitter frac Lou Elmo I don't think that's a real name so I can read it out all in, in, in it's entirely in it's entirely in its entirety I know English um, says the announcement of spelljammer for D&amp;D 5th edition actually that might be more for Alex um, or for me um, although I do not really play DD, I do engage in tabletop role-playing games though because I'm a giant geek and I'm not no longer afraid to admit it um, hypocrite reader says messianic time. Hmm. I don't really know what that's supposed to mean. Uh, and common Rider RX says Chuck missed hell. And uh, honestly, I don't think he missed hell. I think he. It sounded pretty much like he was <laughs> right smack dab in the middle of it. Um, so, uh,. Yeah, let's see. who Who is this week's winner? And I'm going through these, and I think this week's uh, winner of the question from hell is Luke H., who wrote in, Chuck missed the most important election of our lives. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 true. I mean, Jeff laughs. He, he knows exactly what what we're talking about. Oh
3: yeah, yeah, because that's what's <laughs> every election. Every election has been the most important election of our lives. Yeah,
1: yeah it's like the party that cried wolf. Mm. Anyway, uh, so Luke H, please get in touch with us. Write an email to Chuck at thisishell or Seb S E B at thisishell or to both of us. Why don't you? Um, and we'll get back in touch with you and send you a piece of merchandise of your choice. And this concludes this week in Limbo. Stick with us, dear listeners. We are almost out of it. Uh, We will be back with more Limbo and even some actual hell next week. Uh, We're doing it like Monkey Island 2 and have Chuck return. Oh boy, that is a nerdy deep cut. Um, And also probably shows my age. Um, But then again, right now, I think... I mean, at, at least between Jeff, Chuck and I I'm probably the youngest uh, but then again we also have Lindsay and Dan who are still spring chickens com- in comparison to me but anyway um, next week more staff picks uh, interviews a brand new interview a brand new rotten history a brand new mode of truth I-, I assume yes yes Jeff Jeff gives me the thumbs up um, and of course a brand new question from hell which I guess I will have to come up with jeez um with equally brand new answers, but those brand new answers are up to, uh, up to you, dear listeners. So, so, thanks to all my co-producers who uh, keep this here show going, um, even if our deal leader is still trying uh, to, you know, get get back into upright position without um, getting to win it all too quickly. Uh, And with all of that, to all of you listening, be it live at thisishell.com or as a podcast, wherever, whatever you're doing, whoever you are, whatever you are, whatever is in your pockets, a phone, a wallet, a knife, a pocket constitution, or a portal to a dimension where everyone is made up entirely of fart sounds, we wish you a good and happy weekend.